Chapter 11 Council Jim washed, letting the cascade of hot water pour over him, drumming against his back and shoulders and easing his knotted muscles. They'd only been in Losolfheim a few hours, but already he felt strangely rejuvenated and safe. The captain had taken leave to seek out some old friend among the fairies, while the rest of the crew had been shown here, to their lodgings. A wide cave whose sandy floor fell away toward a pool of blue-green water fed by a handful of small streams that tumbled down over the rocks. Steam rose from the water and choked the narrow beam of daylight that pierced down from a cleft in the rock high above. Pheasants, occasionally, would screech down through the hole, bright streaks of red-green that seemed to ride the column of sunlight into the gloom, their loud calls echoing all around. But the Arconauts paid no mind, and being familiar with the place, lay bedrolls upon the sand to sleep, or played at slate cards, or stripped and bathed in the falls of hot water. Jim caught himself staring at Kelpie, whose gentle frame seemed so incongruous with the hourglass tattoo that was now revealed, spreading its broad wings across his chest. Boulder had splashed him then, and yelled in mock protectiveness, and they had all laughed for the first time since leaving the graveyard. Jim dried himself and dressed. His skin was sore from the onslaught of the sun, and he lamented the loss of his shirt. This shirtlessness, it seemed, marked him as a newcomer to the crew. The twins, the most recent addition besides him, had only purchased their new tunics a few months back, having been similarly shirtless for the best part of a year. He hoped to find something sooner than that. He felt awkward and clumsy and vulnerable in his bare skin. The crew of fifty were swallowed by the enormity of the cave. It almost felt like they were encamped on a beach at night, so far away were the walls. Only the echoing gave it away. Whispers were hard to conceal in the hot, damp cave. He heard it confirmed that the splicer the church had bought here was Syrinx, and that she had been forced to do awful things against her will. He also heard tell of this fairy friend the captain had gone to see, a woman or girl and she was quite clearly pregnant, it seemed, if the whispers were to be believed. How long since you were last here? Jim asked Gam, who seemed to hear everything, whether he chose to or not. Is it the captain's child? It seemed impossible to think of the captain siring children. He could only have been perhaps four years older than Jim. Gam shook his head. I don't think so. Migra and the captain... They were involved for a long time, but he's too young for her now, or she's too old, I'm not sure. It's been a year since we were here, besides, and they fought last time. Jim thought of Nix, and of her wailing and clutching at the body beneath the sheet. He should find her, make sure she was okay, though he worried his signing was too clumsy and practical for such a conversation. He wandered the caves of Losolfheim alone, stopping to ask once or twice for Malvor, Nix's father, but not all the fair folk were as trusting as the good mother, and most refused to answer him directly. Eventually, lost and alone, he had come across Waylon, struggling with a chest of tools, 
and though it wouldn't have helped anyway, for it was sent far too late, Waylon was still mortified that he had failed in his task. And so he had determined to pull the offending tech from the ship and repair it in one of the great shielded chambers of the fairies. Jim, of course, was enlisted to help. Hand me the melter, will you? Jim plucked the hot steel wand from the bench and handed it over cautiously. The young techsmith was hunched over a tangle of wires and circuitry, a pair of thick lenses over his eyes as he squinted down at the thing he called a radio. Okay, try now. He called across the room to the fairy boy who'd been appointed to watch over them, but now was serving as a third pair of hands to their tinkering. The boy nodded, then turned back to his instruments. A dizzying array of lights, switches and dials set into the ancient worktop before him. He wore a curious device upon his head that covered both ears, and he closed his eyes, listening as he fiddled with a pair of dials. He opened his eyes again and shook his head apologetically. Ugh, well, that's it then. Waylon threw his hands up in frustration. The Tixorix is fried! Jim peered at the ship's radio on the bench. It looked like a creature that had been caught by some predator, its hard outer shell cracked open to expose the wires and precious components within. Waylon reached in and teased a circuit board from the heart of the device, holding it up for the fairy boy to see. You have more of this? I need a new one. The boy crossed the room and took the small board, turning it over in his hands with a frown. He shook his head. No, I think. Not here. There might be one inside the machines, but... But it is forbidden to touch them, I know, muttered Waylon bitterly. Jim got the impression he had been longing to get at the fairy tech for some time. What's it for? Jim asked, taking the part and squinting at the intricate silver wires tracing across the green tech plate. Power? Power? No. Look. Waylon pointed out a pair of threaded gold cylinders affixed to the board, and Jim saw the letters TXRX engraved alongside them. TXRX. It's the part that converts trace into words. You speak into here. He indicated a makeshift plastic handset that trailed from the device. And then this part twists your words up within the trace. Then someone with another radio can sort of catch the words and untangle them. Very dangerous, muttered the fairy boy darkly, as he did whenever the word trace was uttered. Though Jim understood his fear, there was enough old tech in here to bring every raption for a thousand clicks. But these weren't relics, not salvaged scraps from the ruined world. These devices were the birthright of a people who descended directly from the tech makers of old. So what's the answer? Jim asked, sniffing at the circuit. It smelled faintly of burned plastic. Question, corrected Waylon. Always questions. The scientist is not a person who gives the right answers. He is the one who asks the right questions. <laughs> That's what my teacher used to say. Whenever you're stuck for an answer, Waylon, try to reach for the right question instead. What's a scientist? Oh, they were like splicers and techsmiths in the old world. Before, you know? The ones that built all this. He gestured around at the fairy tech lining the chamber. Oh, 
Okay. Jim thought on this for a moment before adding, Well, what's the question then? Waylon took the broken circuit back and frowned. Where do I get another one of these, I guess? While Waylon took the broken radio back to the ship, along with some scraps of plastic to feed the crabs, Jim set off once again in search of Nick's. Night had fallen, and the occasional shafts of light that pierced the caves from above had faded, leaving only the orb-like tech lights that were festooned along the walls and the curious stars set high into the vaulting ceilings, mirrored in the glassy pools below. Jim thought of Nix's name sign, fingers kicking like legs through water, and remembered her love of swimming. None of the hundreds of pools within Lossalheim had been deep enough to swim, and so he sought out the main gate and took his leave to stroll outside, alongside the banks of the inner sea, in hope of finding her. Not a glimmer of artificial light escaped the caves, though the moon was waxing toward full and hung low in the evening sky. The water was clear and dark, and Jim felt sure, as he clambered along the overhanging rocks, that he would be able to see her, shining like a white beacon in the deep pools. But there was nothing. He strolled by moonlight to the western edge of the island, beneath the wispy column of smoke that still drifted lazily into the night sky. The smoke of the mere trees. He'd heard of them in the fairy stories too, magical trees that took in light during the day and gave it back at night. He'd imagined scenes of beautiful twilight forests and fertile soil, not some jagged rock beset by the flood sea. But it was still strangely comforting to know that not all his childhood wonder had been false, though he might never be able to see the trees now. He climbed jagged and perilous rocks toward the smoke, hoping for a glimpse of the burned orchard within. He knew, of course, that it had been put to the torch by the church and their pirate army, but some part of him hoped he might see something, some remnant sapling that had survived the fire against the odds. The opening was wide, perhaps ten feet across, and seemed like a gaping, bottomless void against the moonlit rocks without. The smoke was thin and eerie as it caught the light, and Jim half imagined the dust of the trees still glowing as they drifted upward in death. Cautiously, he clambered to the edge, putting his back to the low moon and squinting down toward the patch of ground that the light struck. He heard voices below, barely discernible among their own echoes. Oh, come, child. You knew it as well as she... It was never to last, this thing. It was time she took someone her own age. Fearing he'd stumbled deep into privacy, Jim made to turn and leave, but there was a noise, and suddenly a sharpness and pain at his throat, something grasping his hair. One move, and your blood will mix with the ashes, Utlander. The voice was deep, cold. Jim fought every instinct to squirm, kick, and run. He felt the cold bite of a blade at his neck and the hot breath of his attacker against his ear. A figure appeared at the edge of the hole, springing out of the darkness in a blur of white, a long blade catching the moonlight. The features were hard to make out, though Jim recognised the strong set of the frame. 
The blade lowered. One of yours, Inkainen, spoke the figure, and Jim recognised the voice of Alue. There was a quick hand gesture, and suddenly the knife at his throat vanished, his hair released. You should tread careful, boy. There has been much faith broken here, Alue spoke as his blade disappeared into its sheath. What is your business? I'm... Jim found his voice stuck in his throat and coughed. I'm looking for Nix. The girl we brought back? I know who she is, snapped Alue. She isn't here, boy. Be off. Bring him down to me, came a call from the chamber below, and Jim recognised the voice from before. The voice of the good mother. Jim's mouth was suddenly dry. He'd heard something he shouldn't have, and he didn't like his chances of lying about it to the old woman. Grumbling, Uluwe took Jim firmly in hand and led him into the void and down. The climb was steep and treacherous, and without Uluwe's strong arm and guidance he would surely have slipped and been dashed against the rocks below, but as it was, he soon found himself standing, shaken and damp with fear sweat, among the burned ruins of the mere grove. The moonlight shone down from the opening like a searchlight, cutting blue through the dusty, smoky air. Though the night was cold, Jim was sure he could still feel the remembered heat of the fire radiating from the floor and walls of the chamber. The good mother stood, arm in arm with the captain, among the black and crumbling boughs of the trees, her eyebrows raised toward Jim expectantly. I believe thanks are in order. I'm sorry. Yes, thank you. Jim mumbled, eyes fixed on the ground. I wasn't trying to. Your captain has told me how you rescued the girl. The good mother went on. Thank you, Jim Hatcher, for bringing her back to us. Jim looked up into the huge, dark eyes reflecting the moonlight now. They were smiling. Oh, well, I didn't really. It was luck, mostly. And she saved me, besides, so we're even. He glanced at the captain, trying to weigh whether he'd said the right words, but the rusty-haired boy was lost in the past and paying no mind to the present. Hmm, that is good. The good mother bobbed her head, setting her locked hair swaying. Lifskuld. The debt is paid then. She continued her walk, arm in arm with the captain, and motioned for Jim to follow. Settle an argument for me, if you will, Jim, she said, gesturing at the ghastly blackened trees all around. What is the difference between a secret that is meant to be found and a secret that is meant to be forgotten? Jim turned the puzzle over in his mind. He'd heard some riddles from foreigners upon the trussel before and in stories, but none like this. The confusion must have been plain to read because she continued. Let us say you have a secret, some treasure or other, and you want to make sure somebody one day will find it. But not today. What do you do? Hide it, I suppose. Indeed you would. She smiled. Now let's say you have another secret, a dark one perhaps, and you want to make sure nobody finds it, not ever. Would you hide it also? Yeah, I think so. 
The captain threw his hands up in triumph, but the good mother stopped to turn to Jim, her gaze penetrating. Unless... Jim hesitated. Go on. Well, wouldn't it be better to just destroy it? She smiled and spread her arms, indicating the scorched trees all around. It seems so, does it not? This was different, the captain spoke at last. This was close by, and the secret hard to keep. Nobody would go to the end of the earth just to destroy something that's already hidden. That's not how people work. They would. They are, child. This leader of theirs, Rasmus they call him, is not like the old pars. For him it's not about the money, or the power, or the violence even, though God knows he's no stranger to it. This man really believes the reason the world is this way is because of tech, and that the only way to get back to God's grace is to stamp it out once and for all. That's why they will go to the end of the earth, and all the preserved knowledge of a thousand years will burn if they get there first. The captain hesitated. First? What do you mean first? The good mother glanced mischievously at the captain, her dark eyes twinkling. Oh no, no way. The captain shook his head. I've got a crew to feed. We haven't made a good haul in weeks. We need coin for that, not honour. Matron, I hate the church as much as you, but I can't be taking the boys off on some crusade. Plenty of coin in old tech, as I understand. Not if it's burnt to ashes when we get there, there isn't. Faster ship on the world sea? That's what you used to say, isn't it? They have a head start. We don't even know where they're going. He jabbed a finger at the nearest mere tree. They burned all the maps, remember? Even in the dark, Jim could see the good mother's eyes close as the two pools of reflected moonlight winked out. The old ways and places are still known to a few. When I was a child, there was a man that came here trading stories for tech. A white man that spoke the elder tongue. I'm done with the scanned. The good mother shook her head. Not scanned. Magi. That's worse. Tecromancers. The captain scoffed. Mad old wizards. They all got hunted down by their machines or burned as blasphemers. There are none left. He is left. Rumours of his name still blow in the West. Node, he is called. You must find him if you are to learn the way. This is all just madness. The captain turned away, exasperated. Finding tool. Hunting for wizards. Fooling around with the past isn't going to make anything better for today, is it? It's too late. All the secrets of all the code rites of the ancient world, buried beneath Thule, they say. All manner of past fixes for present problems, I should think. For the world. And for each of us. She reached out and gently touched the bandage that covered Jim's eye socket, and he was surprised to find he didn't flinch away. Might even find some Medica code, too. To change things back to how they ought to be. She looked at the captain, and Jim sensed that some meaning passed between them, 
but it was hidden to him. Cap caught Jim staring. What? Your crew now? You have a voice? Speak your mind? Well, it's just what Syrinx said, isn't it? This whole mess started because of ignoring the past. And they've still got her, haven't they? Prisoner-like? Don't we owe her our help? The good mother smiled. A wise one you got here, Gil. Sometimes one eye sees clearer than two. The captain sighed, relenting at last. You know, we have to have a vote on it. It's not just my decision. The good mother smiled, the deep pools of her eyes twinkling. And you know as well as I, those boys will do whatever you ask of them. Beyond the constant blur of red-green comets, Jim spotted the small wiry outline of a fairy, white against the black rock, huddled in the corner of the tall chamber. He'd found her at last. The good mother's guess had been good. She had told him, You seek to find someone who wants to be alone. Try going where nobody wants to be. And nobody wanted to be here. The pheasantry was a permanent cacophony of screeching birds, spinning and whirling like feathered darts around the moonlight at the centre of the cave shaft. Jim darted forward into the light, narrowly avoiding a collision as he sprung past the wall of diving birds. The noise in here was deafening, but unlike the suffocating engine roar of his old home on Six Deck, the pheasants were a discordant choir, ever rising and falling, and predictable only in their inharmony. It was music, but made by different, perverse rules, impossible to ignore or drown out. Nix, of course, didn't care. He'd thought at first that she'd even managed to find sleep here and was about to retreat, but the young pheasant that nestled at her feet had nudged her then, and she had stirred, opened one eye, and had seen him there, cowering within the whirlwind of screeching birds. Sadness seemed to overwhelm her then, as his presence disturbed her peace, and he felt guilty and selfish for having sought her out. Only one sign came to mind. Sorry. Nix forced a smile and shuffled to one side as if to make space for him, though she sat upon the floor and there was space aplenty. Jim bade his time before crossing the wall of streaking birds again. He almost lunged twice but sprung back, clipped by wingtips and prompting outraged squawks from the birds. Slowly. Walk slowly, Nix signed. Jim hesitated staring up at the whirlwind of moonlit birds, some almost the size of dogs. If he went slowly... Trust. Nix gestured, as if she were grasping a rope with both hands, clinging on for dear life. Trust. He shut his eyes and stepped forward, expecting to collide with at least a dozen of the birds, so great was their speed. But nothing. He opened his eyes and couldn't help but laugh. The birds were flowing around him on both sides like a river parting around a stone, barely slowing their pace as they rejoined the spiralling flock. He grinned at Nix with wonder on his face, and the smile she returned was no longer forced. They are amazing, he signed as he reached the far wall and sat beside her. How do they know to do that? 
Her smile faded, and she fussed at the young bird at her feet. They don't. It is just programming. Jim's mouth fell open as he looked back at the wall of birds. They are machines? Nix shook her head. No, spliced. They are not from nature. Our creators took things from beasts they liked and mixed them. That is all pheasants are. Amazing, Jim signed, looking at the young bird with renewed awe. It is? Nix asked with an eyebrow raise. It's not just the pheasants. Everything here is fake. The mere trees, even us. She wrapped a hand hard against her chest. Jim hesitated, then made the sign for questioning. They built us, just the same as the birds. Nobody says it, but everyone knows. The creators tried to make a whole race of their own. We aren't like you. We aren't part of the world. You aren't fake, Nix. You don't know. It hurts, doesn't it? Your friend. She didn't reply, but he could see that it was true. That is not fake. She swallowed, then brushed something that might have been a tear from her eye, and took a long breath. Suddenly, the forced smile was back. You are leaving. I think so, Jim signed, accepting the change of subject. There will be a vote, but I think we are going after them. She sat bolt upright, then, as if he had slapped her. Take me with you. I must come. I don't think. Why? Her eyes lit up then, and she signed slowly. Revenge. But you are home now. They will not let you. I think, the good mother will not. She will. Nix interrupted. You must tell her that you saved my life and that I am owed to you as payment. Jim's throat constricted as he remembered the old fairy's questions in the mere grove. I cannot. You must. Her sign was vigorous, as insistent as it had been the first time he'd seen her in Shoalhaven. It is an old tradition, but I have already told her. You saved me. The debt is paid, she said. Nix's mouth hung open. Then she balled her fists and pressed them to her eyes, turning away from him. She might have groaned, but Jim could barely hear his own mind over the screeching birds. Suddenly, she was facing him again, staring fierce into his eyes. The captain, then. You tell him it was me that scared off the pirates on the island. You tell him you were scared, and I saved you. I, I can't. What if he takes this away? Jim gestured at the purple sash bound around his head. You said it would be our secret. You have to. You didn't see what they did to Sarah. They cut her, Jim. All over. All to try and find a secret that wasn't even there. I know, but you're afraid again. Jim hung his head then, ashamed.
The truth was already in his head, but it hurt terribly to see it on the face of another. Eventually, he marshalled the strength to look at her. You are home now, Nix. Your parents are here. I haven't got anywhere else to be. She just shook her head and screwed her eyes shut with such force Jim half imagined he could hear them close. I'm sorry, he signed uselessly. He tapped her on the leg, shook her, but her eyes stayed firmly shut. The small bird at her feet snapped at him angrily, protectively, and he backed away. I'm sorry, he spoke, but his words were lost in the clamour. The argument kept him awake through most of the night, and he could barely keep from yawning as he stood on the deck of the Archon at sunup. The vote hadn't taken long. Some of the crew understood the importance of Thule and the need to get there first, but most were drawn by the promise of fathomless riches or the desire to exact revenge upon Sar and the godsmen. Once it was decided, Jim had skipped duties, searching for Nix while the rest of the crew stashed their gear and made ready for sale, but it was no use. Eventually he'd given in and joined the other Arconauts as they watched the captain speak one last time with the good mother. A great many fairies had spilled out of the gate to see the Archon off, though whether through gratitude or a wish to be rid of outlanders, Jim couldn't read. He searched the crowd, hoping to see Nix among them that he might apologise, find some sign to repair the damage, but she was nowhere to be seen. Eventually the good mother embraced the captain, and he bowed, pulling on his hat before striding up the gangway and motioning for Slip to weigh anchor. Soon the great ship began to drift across the inner sea and towards the narrow gully that defended it. Jim's eyes never left the assembled fair folk, straining hopelessly for some glimpse of his friend until Puggle let out a long, lamenting cry overhead. He looked up then and saw her wheeling alone around the masttop. Only now she wasn't alone. Jim smiled sadly as he recognised something tangling in the air with her. A new addition to the crew. A small, young pheasant sailing away with them to the west. Our voyage through the world of the Risen Tide continues in the next episode, which will be here in just a few days. New chapters will be released on Monday and Thursday every week, so hit subscribe to stay up to date, or if you just can't wait, the full tale is available today on Audible, Spotify, and more. If you'd rather read than listen, head over to talesoftherisentide.com or Amazon to grab yourself a hard copy or ebook. Thanks for listening.